Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Turn with me this morning to Psalm 82. Psalms 82. We're going to look at, I I struggled with what to call this, so we're just going to call it the nature of the conflict, understanding spiritual warfare, and uh, we need to understand the battle that we are in. We are in a series on prayer, and we're looking at the final of four categories. We're looking at the spiritual realm and the context in which all of this takes place. What is the opposition to prayer? We've talked about the cosmology, the, the environment in which prayer takes place. We've talked about God, the one we're praying to. We've talked about man, and we're going to return to this one, our anthropology, the the prayer. We need to understand the equipment God has given us as human beings, humanoids, and we're going to return to that. But we also want to talk about the opposition, the, the conflict we're in. Who are we really battling with? And this is why there is resistance in prayer. And so we're looking at the nature of the battle. And so Psalm 82 is a very fascinating passage. So I want to read this to you. If you have your Bibles or your iPad or your iPhone or whatever, let's read through this. I'm reading out of the ESV, and I do have it... um, have that first verse there. So let me see if this works. Look at that. Technology, isn't it great? A psalm of Asaph. So Asaph was one of the worship leaders in Israel, and he was given this by direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. He got a download, and not just a download in the sense of some poetic song that was inspired, but there was literally insight that is unique that God gave to Asaph. That there were some things that he understands, and he put into print here that you and I need to understand. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds weird from the theology that I was taught growing up and what I was taught in Bible school. When I was in Bible school, I was never taught about the divine council. I was never told about this, and so I would read that, and I wrestled with it, and there's different movements, have different interpretations of this unique psalm, but I am convinced of what I'm sharing with you this morning, that this is what Scripture means when it talks about this. So, he says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds his judgment. Matter of fact, let's look at another verse that that covers that same thing. Psalm 89, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faith faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. This is another phrase for the divine council. There is the assembly of the holy ones. He goes on to say, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. There he uses that word council as opposed to the assembly. Same idea, the council of the holy ones and an awesome above all who are around him. So it's referring to this divine council, this assembly of the holy ones by which God rules. Now, we talked a number of weeks back, sometime in the last six months, I don't know, uh, about how God operates through delegated authority. That is true in the heavens and that is true on earth. And that's something important for us to realize because a lot of times you'll hear people say, I don't need people. I'm just, it's just me and Jesus. I got a relationship with God. And scripture does say that you, there is no mediator except the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have one mediator between God and man. That is true. But we're not talking about a mediator. We're talking about authority structure. And God operates through layers of authority. That's true in the physical realm and it's true in the spiritual realm. And so when we interact with God, you read throughout scripture, a lot of times someone will have an angelic encounter and it'll say, and the angel said, and God said, and you're like, well, which one is it? Uh Uh-huh. Because God is speaking through his agents, his messengers, the angels. And so they're, they're interacting with angels and they're getting, they're getting messages from angels, but they are from God and it is the word of the Lord. And so God works through layers of authority and God has a council, a, an assembly of the holy ones that surround him. There are a number of words used for these holy ones. Uh, one of the more controversial words or the, one of the words that 
often aren't associated is the word Elohim. Now, I don't know about you. Some of you that have studied the word for many years uh, were probably like me, and I looked at Elohim as a title for God. But then I began to realize that the word Elohim is used for a number of spiritual beings in Scripture, including disembodied human spirits. Uh, Samuel, when he was conjured up by the witch of Endor, she said, I see an Elohim, and it was Samuel. And so Elohim is not a title for God. It's a designation for a class of spiritual being or a type of spiritual beings. And so these... these, these assembly of the holy ones are referred to as Elohim. They're, they're referred in Daniel as watchers. They're referred to as the sons of God in Job chapter 1. And, in, and even in this passage, uh, they're referred to as sons of God. And so then that begs the question, well, how can we say that Jesus is the only begotten son? If he's the only one, then how do we, does he have other sons? And for that matter, how, do, how can you and I be sons if Jesus is the only begotten? Well, the word that we translate, the term that we translate only begotten son in the New Testament is monogenes. Mono meaning unique, only. And genes means, uh, that's where we translate begotten, but it's not really a great translation. It means that it's gen- he's, he's the only unique one that is from the Father. He's connected to the Father. Genes, where it's, it's uh, the root word that we get our genetics and all of that. He's, the only, he's a unique one among all the sons of God, which include you and I, because in John chapter 1, it says, to those who receive him, to those who believe on his name, he gave the power to become the sons of God. You and I are sons. We have come into the family by birth. And it's not just by external adoption where we we have a different biological code, but we get his name. We literally are partakers of the divine nature. We are born ones. Technon is the Greek word. We are born ones of God. But he has given us the right to become sons of God. So the uniqueness of Jesus is in his relationship from the Father. He is the only uncreated son. All the other sons of God, whether the, the spiritual beings or human beings, uh, we are all created by the Father. So in that sense, Jesus is the only begotten. He's the only unique son. He's different than all the others. Now, some of you, you're just looking at me like, yeah, okay, pastor, move it along. I'm just telling you, sometimes we have questions. We need to clear this up. And maybe none of you had that, but I did. So I'm answering my own questions, and I feel very satisfied with that answer. So, okay? All right. So let's move on here. Uh, It's important for us to understand this. Now, uh, let's look at verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? What this passage is dealing with is God calling these sons of God or the members of the divine council or the assembly of the holy ones, he's calling them into account. He's rebuking them and, t- and he's telling them, hey, you're not doing your job. These are rogue rulers that God delegated the earth to. And it's important for us to understand this because this brings in the nature of the battle. All right? And so he goes, look at, look at this. Uh, so he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Look at Deuteronomy 32. This is a reference back to this passage. Now in Deuteronomy 32, Moses is giving his final song. Now we touched on this last week, but we burned through this material so quickly. I want you to see this. Deuteronomy 32, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel. It's really his song. And he's speaking, and he he references this. He says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. So what he's saying is literally, God gave the entire human race a promised land. God designated, this is what Paul is talking about when he says in Acts 17 that God assigned the times and the places in which men should live. God assigned your location, but he also assigned your generation. 
Now, we don't have time to get into this time thing, this generation thing, but I'm telling you, this is significant because those two details are the parameters of your calling. Let me say that again. The generation in which you live and the location in which you live provide parameters for your calling. There's something about this times and seasons thing and God's breathing on this right now. We don't have time to get into it, but I want to encourage you to chase that phrase down in Scripture. Israel's history was divided among the rulership, the times and seasons of the kings. It says, David served his generation and then he was laid to rest. Your generation is the parameter of your calling. There's a reason that God called you at this moment in human history. That ought to be very encouraging to you. Because God chose your life to live in the upheaval of 2020. There's something about you and I that made us necessary for this moment in history. We didn't get the raw end of the deal by having to live through 2020. For some reason, God saw something in you that said, this is one that can handle it, and I'm going to use them to shape history. We need to understand that the season in which we live is very crucial. There's an assignment. There is a, an allocation of the season in which we live. And when we understand, that's why we need to know the times and season. The sons of Isaacar, they understood the times and therefore they knew what they should do. There's something about the season in which you live that gives you your marching orders and we need to be in tune with what is the season, what is God saying so that we can be about our father's business because God has a certain purpose for this hour of human history. There are certain things he wants to unload and unpack and release on planet earth because he builds generation on generation on generation. And there are times where people are taken out prematurely and there's, there's a hole in history. There's something left undone that God wants to reset the times and seasons when that happens. It's a very important parameter. The other parameter is your location. And what he's insinuating here is God the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. He's referring, scholars are largely in agreement that he is referring back to Genesis chapter 11 at the dispersion of the nations. Matter of fact, I might even have that up on the next slide. My clicker's not working. Did I turn it off? Okay. Oh man, it did work. It's just slow. Okay. Anyway, if you can click back one screen here. Uh, what do I have? Okay, go to the next one. Go to the next one. Go back to the last one. I was rewriting this on the front row. Okay. Go back to the last one. There we go. Thank you. No, that's not the one. Go one more. There we go. Go, go to the Genesis or the uh, Deuteronomy one. Deuteronomy 31. There. Thank you. Okay. This is why I don't use PowerPoint. You have to be a much more organized individual than I am, okay? I'm just kind of spontaneous. Okay. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, if you remember at Babel, the Tower of Babel, they, they gathered together and they said, we're going to build a tower to the heavens. And so it says, God said, let us go down. Now, most people interpret that as the Trinity, but it very well may be speaking of the divine council coming down, that ruling council coming down and said, let us go down and see this thing. And it says, nothing will be impossible for them. So we're going to disperse them. We're going to, we're going to disperse them across the earth. And that's what God did confuse their language. And it says, then in chapter 12, it says, it, it talks about the call of Abram. That's when it introduces this guy. So look at this. In light of that, Moses is looking back at this time and he says, when Most High gave to the nations their inheritance back at Babel, when the, he divided mankind and fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God, that's what this passage, Psalm 82, is talking about. That God delegated the nations to these sons of God, what the New Testament now refers to as principles. Principalities. 
these ruling spirits. So it goes on, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted his allotted heritage. It is not a coincidence that prior to this time, we see this strange passage where it talks about the sons of God looking on the daughters of men and finding them beautiful. And so it says they went in unto them and made children. And these children, these the, the byproduct of these unions, these sexual unions, were the heroes of old. They were called the Nephilim. It's not a coincidence that this happens prior to Babel where God disperses the nations. Because that was uh, extra biblical writings, both the, you know, some like the, the, uh, the Ethiopian church believes that the book of Enoch is part of scripture. We don't, we don't believe that it was inspired, but it was the accepted history of the, the New Testament authors, the early church fathers, looked at that as an accurate depiction of history. And it was the oral history that had been passed down through ages. And uh, there's a lot of, the Masoretic languages have a lot of writings about this time in human history, and it matches what the book of Enoch is saying, and it matches scripture. Scripture, the book of Enoch just simply elaborates. Now, how much of it is the details are accurate, we don't know. But we do know that the biblical authors accepted that as the, the historical happenings at the time. And the book of Enoch tells us that there were these watcher angels. It's the term that Daniel uses for these ruling spirits. And it says that they looked on the daughters of men and that they, they had sex with them. But it also says that he told they, these watcher angels taught the, the human beings forbidden knowledge. It's literally the idea of the occult. It's not that what they taught them it was, was untrue. It was, it was manipulated knowledge and they were giving them knowledge that the human beings weren't supposed to have. And that launched them into tremendous debauchery and violence. Matter of fact, the second temple period, okay, between the testaments, there was the, the Jewish people, it's called the second temple period, and they had the Jewish teaching, uh, Jewish thought what that was that there were two avenues in which evil entered into the world, Okay. Two avenues. The first event, of course, was Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. And they had a fallen nature. Their nature fell. That was an internal evil. They had a propensity towards sin. They had a fallen nature. But they also looked at, and many of them even put more weight upon it, there was a second avenue of evil, and that was this sin of the watchers, where they taught the sons of men knowledge that they weren't supposed to know. And, they, and it says in the book of Enoch that they taught them uh, about armament and, and war. And uh, that's why it says in that passage, and they were given to violence. Every thought that they had was given to violence. And that, that's why the Lord said, we're just going to wipe them out through uh, the flood. And the, the uh, consensus among many theologians is that the purpose of the flood was to wipe out this corrupted seed of the, the, of the Nephilim. Because there were, they were half human, this hybrid being that were the heroes of old. So now let me just mess with you a little bit, because I like to do that. It, this thing, you, you think about ancient Grecian mythology, where you have Hercules, who was the son of a male god and a, fe, and a human female, and he was a hero of old. Now, there's, there are some, there's oral history that comes down. Now, do we believe in uh, uh, Hercules, no, but it's rooted in some of this history here. Now, a lot of it has been embellished over time, but that is what is being insinuated in the text. These heroes of old, that they were the giants of old, and so they were sons of these spiritual beings. And so what, what the book of Enoch teaches and I'm not so sure it's not correct. Matter of fact, I lean very, very heavily towards this being a correct interpretation of where demons came from. That demons are not the fallen angels. Matter of fact, the fallen angels that we see, the watchers, Peter's very clear. They were put in eternal chains. They're not out there right now. They are in chains. They have been in prison. So where are these demons? Enoch says that these demons are the disembodied spirits of these Nephilim. And, that, and he, he says it this way. Hungering they cannot eat. Thirsting they cannot drink. So they desire to inhabit a human body to satiate their lusts. 
And that's why people are driven when they become demonized. They're so driven by their desires. And so, who knows? I guess we'll find out when we get to heaven. But I kind of lean towards that. There's no definitive scripture that we can hang that on. There's, you, can, you can read between the lines and some of this extra biblical material. Don't know. Big question mark. But we know we have a spiritual battle and we know that the, the watcher angels who sinned with women are now in chains. So they're not out there and around. But there are other fallen beings that we are engaged with. And that is what Psalm 82 is about. It's about these fallen beings and God is calling them to account. And so let's look on further here. I'm going to pull up my PowerPoint so I can see because it's too small back there. I can't read it. Okay, so we're on the, the Psalm or the uh, Deuteronomy 32. Okay, look at verse 3. If we can go to verse 3 on the, over here. There we go. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is the charge that God is giving to the members of the divine council. He's telling them, listen, this is how you're supposed to act. You're supposed to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. They are to watch over those who were allocated to their territory and they were part of God's divine council God's hierarchy and they were to rule and reign with them they were to watch over humanity thus they were referred to as watchers and we see one of these show up in in the book of Daniel you remember Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar was the unreserved absolute ruler of the world nobody could stand before his army he was accountable to no man so what did God do God stepped in and said, you will be accountable to me. And he has a dream in which a watcher brings to him a message from God and essentially says, you're going to be put out to pasture for seven years, literally. And he loses his mind and he goes out and eats grass and grows his fingernails real long and doesn't bathe for seven years. It always intrigues me that there wasn't a revolution and they didn't just bump off the crazy king and someone else took his place, but they didn't. They just let him go out to pasture for a while. And after seven years, he shows up and said, I need my nails cut and I need to take the throne back. Go figure. But it was, it was an edict from the watcher. It was one of those divine beings that were over, that were a ruling council, a created being, but delegated authority and brought a message to Nebuchadnezzar and said, God's calling you to account. God was calling Nebuchadnezzar as a human ruler to account, just as he is calling these spiritual rulers to account in this passage. Now I'm going somewhere, you're thinking, Pastor, this may be interesting history, but what does this have to do with us? I'm going to get there. Just hang with me, okay? So, rescue the weak. Okay, let's, the next one. Let's see if this, look at Solomon. Now here is the verdict that God is giving these ruling creatures. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now, I have wrestled with this passage and, uh, the scholars I've read attribute this, they have neither knowledge nor understanding, they walk about in darkness. They attribute that to these, these Elohim, these, these council members. I think it could very easily be attributed to the weak and the poor that, that God is calling to them. But the, these other guys that are smarter than me and know, you know, they, they know original languages, they attribute that to them. And I find that interesting. But what stands out to me is all the foundations of the earth are shaken. Because of evil, remember how we began to talk about the first verse of divine revelation in Scripture says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They were created simultaneously because their destinies are intertwined. Their purposes are intertwined. God never intended for heaven and earth to operate independently. There was a, a relationship between the heavens and the earth. And the earth was created for man, obviously. But I would propose to you, so were the heavens. The heavens weren't created for a place for God to hang out. Because Solomon tells us, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. He's talking about the heavenly realms, and they were created for you and I. 
That's why in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, God has given us every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly realms in Christ. In redemption. Matter of fact, Colossians chapter 1. This verse wigged me out. I, the first time I really saw it was when my wife was in labor with Evan. Here she was. She's in labor and I'm reading the Bible. I know. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Yeah. Kaz, could you keep it down? I'm trying to study over here. You know? And I saw, I saw. She was a trooper, by the way. There were other ladies cussing in the other room. And Kathy's just, oh, excuse me. She's given birth, and I just thank God I'm a man. Hallelujah. Glory. <laughs> anyway, Colossians chapter 1, it says this. God is reconciling through his blood that which is on the earth and those things that are in the heavens. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus' death on the cross, the spilling of his blood didn't merely, and I'm not trying to under, you know, play, downplay what God did for us, but it didn't merely reconcile you and us to God. It literally reconciled the entire rogue, rebellious universe back to him. Not only the things on the earth, but literally he was reconciling the things in the heavens back to himself. That's what this passage is alluding to. Because it's in the cross that God ripped the authority of these ruling agents back. As I began to see this theme in scripture, I'll tell you what, it really caused me to question my theology of spiritual warfare. Because I've always taught, and I'm back to teaching this, I've, I've come full circle, but I had to understand something. There was a missing piece for me. That the enemy, the principalities and powers and, and heavenly realms, the ones we wrestle with, and understand principality, you know the word municipality, like a city, a principality is a prince, a ruling agent over a pality, an area, a region, a geographically distinct location. The enemy's authority is divided among boundary lines uh, geographical boundary lines. The reason his authority goes along geographical boundary lines is because human authority does. And the enemy no longer has authority. Even though we see in Deuteronomy 32, God allocated that to them. In this passage, he's prophesying about Calvary where he would strip them of their authority and now he sends you and I in as sons of God to displace them. And they don't operate by God-given authority anymore. They operate by abdicated human authority. They operate by fallen man. And the fact is, even Christians, because make no mistake about it, you can grant the enemy authority in your life. By your behavior and by your belief system, you can grant him authority. But what God does is he plants people in a time and in a place. And he begins to take over one surrendered life at a time. And when he has a yielded vessel, just as hell needs surrendered human will to manifest the kingdom of darkness, so God uses surrendered human will to manifest the kingdom of God. And God puts us on this earth to manifest his kingdom and to go into enemy territory and to make it the kingdom of our God. We are the invading force. When you get saved, all of a sudden, heaven has an agent in that region. And what God wants to do is take an individual and multiply them into a church, the ecclesia of God, the authoritative ruling body, and begin to release decrees and begin to see history change because of their declarations and their prayers and their behavior. 
But the fact is, the enemy no longer has authority because we know, matter of fact, I think I have it up here on a, one of the, uh, yes, the next one, look at this. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers in authority and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Literally, what, what Paul is talking about here, and he has several different allusions to this unique Roman ceremony. Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, where we see the fivefold, he says, and he took captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastors and teachers. That, that uh, evangelist, pastors and teachers, that fivefold ministry, that passenger, he's alluding to what Romans would call a victorious entry or a triumphal entry. And this is alluding to that same thing. There's another passage. I want to say it's in 1 Corinthians, I mean 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he talks, or chapter 3. He talks about this thing. And what he's alluding to is that in, in the ancient world, when a king would go and conquer, or a general would go and conquer, he would have a parade when he would return. And he would have all his captives. He would have all the, all the, the, the resources that they captured, all the gold and the silver and the, you know, the, all the cattle and all that and they would have this big parade and the highest form of parade in the Roman culture was called a triumphal entry and it was a way to celebrate their conquering generals and they would march in and some they would have people in chains and on the, the ultimate day of the celebration in that parade they would free some and he would take those freed slaves and give them as gifts to other people and then others would be killed on that day. Uh, often they would put their foot right on their neck and they would kind of, you know, revel in their victory and then they would kill them. It's a gruesome time. But it was a parade and that's what it's alluding to. That Jesus put the principalities and powers, these ruling spirits, to open shame. These were the ones who plotted his death in the spiritual realm and God overcame them. It's the ones that Jesus, or Paul is referring to when it says... Had the rulers of this dark age understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it was the hidden wisdom of God. And God lured them in by their lusts for power. It's what Job is talking about when he says, Can you catch Leviathan? Can you put a, a, a bait on a hook and catch him by his jaw? Martin Luther, the great reformer, said yes. The cross was the hook and Jesus was the bait. Jesus hung and died and hell swallowed him and God whipped it back. I went fishing last week. Whoa, hallelujah. I got a big old catfish. I'll show you the picture after church. you see it. I'm, I'm going to brag. He set the hook. He set the cross and God reeled in hell and stripped them of their authority. So if they have no authority, why is there still a battle? Again, there's, there's several components here. Number one, there's still a battle because they are operating on abdicated human authority. There are people through being deceived have abdicated their authority and lent it to the enemy. So the enemy's operating through that. But there's also the, the idea that it's like, it's similar to somebody who is in an industry high-ranking, you know, executive in a company. He's fired. He leaves the company. He no longer has the position in the company. He no longer has the resources of the company. But what he does bring with him is the trade secrets of the company. He still has understanding of how this sector of business works. And the enemy understands the spiritual realm. And he tries to manipulate that and to twist that to conquer the saints. That is why you and I need to understand the spiritual realm. The spiritual battles are not just a matter of power and authority. Authority is authorization from heaven. And we have been authorized. Every one of us has authority. Authority is very real and authority is also limited. No, people do not have the same amount of authority as believers. Authority has to do with, there's, there's basic authority, the authority of the believer. You have authority over your own life. You have the authority to choose. You have the authority of Jesus' name. But then there's also an advance of authority that there's authority of calling. 
of assignment. And so there's different people who have different levels of authority. It's similar to a police officer. Not every police officer has the same rank of authority. There's different designations that can be expressed through their, you know, the way they dress, the badge they wear. There's different ranks of authority. And there's also different levels of power that believers carry. If you don't believe that, just watch when people get prayed for. There are times where, man, I'm praying for people and then Christopher starts praying. I'm like, what, am I not loaded today, you know? What's the deal? There's, there's different calibers of guns that a police officer can carry. Some may carry a 38 and others carry a 45. It's, there's different calibers of power. Now, you can increase the power. You can increase your caliber. Terry, until you're endued with power. And if you don't have enough power, then tarry some more. Get before God and wait on the Lord and cry out for power. And God wants to give us power. But we also need authority. Authority is the authorization, it's the same word, the authorization to use power. And just as there are different ranks of authority, there are different calibers of power. There are people with a low rank of authority, but they carry a big gun. And it's the real deal. And there's other people with, they have a smaller gun, but greater authority. Because authority and power are two different things in the spirit. They are two distinct words. Really, there's several words that are translated. And sometimes they're translated with the same word, but in the Greek, it's very distinct. Authority is exousia. It's authorization. It's the authorization to use power. But there's another weapon that you and I need to understand if we are to be victorious in spiritual warfare. And this passage, by the way, Psalm 82, is talking more about regional issues. It's talking about geographic issues. It's not talking about spiritual warfare just as, you know, you're, you're being tempted or you're being tormented. And that stuff is real. That's for another day. That's another type of spiritual warfare, another level of spiritual warfare. I'm talking about regional breakthrough here. If we want to see a city rocked for Jesus, if we want to see a region rocked for Jesus, we need to understand that we are engaging. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. We're not wrestling with the people making very poor decisions at the legislative level. We are wrestling with principalities and powers. And we need more than authority and power. We need those, but we also need wisdom. Wisdom is one of the primary weapons that God wants to give us. He wants us to understand. He wants to give to us the wisdom of God. Now we talked about this several years ago and we've touched on it a number of times in, in over the last probably two years. But where Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 3, he talks about that wisdom that has been shut up in God. He said, in times past, men longed to look into this, but they were hidden. But now it's being revealed through his holy apostles and prophets. The words he uses there literally mean that the wisdom he's talking about and the strategy he's releasing there, the language in that passage talks about war room strategy. Literally a root word is war room. And the idea is that there's intel and there's, there's ideas that are garnered and then it's shut in and there's a strategy that is hammered out but it's highly secretive. And it's only available to certain ones until it's time to be released. That's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. When he says that, that men in times past longed to look into these things, but they weren't allowed to. But now they're being released through his holy apostles and prophets. Why? He says now there was a timing to this thing. Part of the purposes of God for that time was this wisdom would be released to launch them into a new time. And the hour in which we live is going to be associated with the revelation in which God gives. Revelation says this phrase several times. Let he who has ears hear what the Spirit would say to the churches. Didn't say just listen to what God's saying to you individually. That's important. You need to, you need to pay attention to that. 
But you also need to pay attention to what is the theme you hear being released over the churches. Are there certain themes that are being emphasized? For example, probably eight years ago or so, we began to hear a lot about honor, the phrase honor, uh, a culture of honor. There was a book that was read by a lot of people, uh, Danny Silk, great book, Culture of Honor. But it wasn't just Danny Silk. There were different streams, different, different uh, parts of the body of Christ that began to teach on this subject of honor because it was important because of the season that we're stepping into. And so you can rest assured when it says the sons of Isaacar knew the times and therefore they knew what they could do. In other words, knowing the sign of the times, knowing what was going on in the hour was crucial. It was a, it was, it, them knowing what to do was predicated upon them recognizing the season in which they should li they're living right then. One of the ways you, you, in which you know the season is you begin to listen. What are the themes being released to the body of Christ? There's no new truth, but there is fresh emphasis and fresh insight on old truths. And it's all found in the word. And when God begins to emphasize something, lean in and pay attention because it's, those are important things for the assignment on the church at large in this hour. So we need to know the times and season in which we should live. We need to pay attention to what God is saying to the churches. God wants to release wisdom. If you look in that passage in Ephesians chapter 3, the context is this, that in times past, people didn't understand. Even the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms, they did not understand that God was going to allow the Gentiles to step in and enjoy what the Jewish people were enjoying. What does that have to do with anything that we're talking about? It goes back to when God allocated the nations. Remember, he said, okay, if you, get, you rogue rulers, this is what we'll do. You each get a territory, but I have my own. There wasn't even a guy he'd called yet. The next chapter, he, he calls Abram out from paganism. And the, the man became a family. The family became multiple tribes. The tribes became a nation. And what was the promise to Abraham? I will bless you. And you will become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. You see, God disinherited the nations, allocated the nations. And now he's taking them back. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he was stripping the enemy of their authority. And then what does he do? Before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he says to his disciples, all authority has been given unto me. And he's explicit here, in heaven and on earth. He talks about both realms. I have it all. So you therefore go. I have authority and I'm sending you in my name. Go into all nations and proclaim the good news of the king's dominion or the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the king's dominion. Go into enemy territory and stake your claim and begin to make the announcement. There's a new king in town. And I'm going to release his rule. This is why the supernatural is so crucial for us to walk in. Because it's not us making announcements that God won't back up. We declare the good news of the king's dominion. Kingdom means king's dominion. Good, gospel means good news. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news of the king's dominion. And we declare, we Proclaim, we, we make proclamation, we have explanation, we teach about the kingdom, we proclaim the kingdom in preaching, but we also release demonstration through signs and wonders. Because God is releasing his sons and daughters to go into this fallen human world, into the fallen realms that these rogue rulers have created. What does it say? Look at, the, go, go back one uh, one. Well, go back to 
Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That is your and my marching orders now. And we're to go out and release the power of God. And God is taking back these nations unto himself. What was the hidden wisdom of God that literally scripture says was hidden within God himself? This secret that he was waiting to reveal? That he is redeeming the nations. That everybody gets in on what his people. God said, I'm going to carve out a people for myself, Israel. Now he's pulling all the nations into the blessings of Israel. We all get to be sons and daughters of God. And you and I need to understand that one of the primary acts of spiritual warfare that you and I can enact is the proclamation of the good news. That when we declare the good news, whenever you go somewhere, when you go on assignment from heaven, I, I love going on missions trips. I love to go to Columbia because I know I go to Columbia under the word of the Lord. I have a supernatural word from heaven that I'm to go into Columbia. And I go in with great faith because I am a sent one into a location where I can release the power of God and send a message to the principalities and powers over the nation of Columbia. There's a new king in town. I am his agent and he is going to overturn evil. And God moves in tremendous power. Every one of us are called to do that. Every one of us have an assignment. Your assignment brings with it authorization, authority from God, and power. Because authority is actually the authorization to use the power of God. And so we need to understand that God is sending us out. Now look at this last, this, uh, last verse, the last slide, guys. So the, what's the last verse? This is heaven's goal, and this, is the, this needs to be our prayer, okay? The last verse of this passage. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. We need to understand God's zealous hunger for the nations of the earth. God really wants the nations. He is out to reclaim them. That is why missions are so important. And that is why missions starts here. God wants to reclaim this nation. God is looking for believers who will exercise their authority. One of the primary ways in which we do that is through intercession. We cry out to God. We're meeting Tuesday morning, 7 to 8. Wednesday morning, 6 to 8. Thursday morning, 7 to 8. Friday morning, 7 to 8. We're crying out to God for this nation and for this region. And God's giving us directives. He's breathing on our prayers. I, I want to encourage you. If you have not made it out, make it out. Try to make it out. Just if you know, one day a week. But God is speaking to us and he's moving upon us and we're having encounters with the Lord. But he is wanting to raise up a people which will press the crown rights of King Jesus in this, realm, this region. God is not done with America. The question is, does the church have faith for that? And do we have the tenacity and the endurance to stay the course to see this thing turned? This verse is explaining the framework of spiritual warfare. God delegated the earth to these rulers. They went rogue. So what did God do? Did he just remove them? No, he said, I'm going to beat you at your own game. He took his, his only begotten, his unique son, who took on human flesh, just like these, these Elohim, these watchers went into the daughters of men and they had children. God picked a young virgin named Mary, and the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. She was impregnated with the seed of God, and she gave birth to the Son of God, fully God, fully man. He walked as a sinless man and then was crucified. And when the enemy crucified an innocent man, that was, went to the Supreme Court of Heaven, which overturned it. And he literally went into hell and came back out with the keys of hell, death, death, and the grave. He stripped the enemy of its power. Power. And in his train, it says, 
that he had a parade and there were captives. He took captivity captive. There were two types of captive. This passage in Psalm 82 says, you were princes, but you will die like men. They have been sentenced by God. But there were other captives, you and I. We were in that train. Just like I said, there were certain captives that were the celebration day. They were killed as a victory. There were others that were given as gifts. A Roman general may go into a city and he, he captures the great philosopher Armando and gets all his scrolls. You ever read Armando's scrolls? Wave at Armando. Yeah, Armando, the great philosopher. And I take him captive. And he's famous throughout the ancient world. And I bring him back and he's in chains. And I'm marching. Woo! Ticker tape. Woo! I got Armando and I got these others. We're going to kill these others. But Armando, he's too valuable. I'm not going to kill him. I'm going to take Armando and I'm going to give him to Josh, a fellow general. Hey, Josh, it's kind of, it's going to rub his face in. Hey, look, I had this victory. I want to give you Armando as a gift to you. And he's going to teach your children. He's a great philosopher. I gave gifts to men and the gifts I gave to men are men. Some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But all of us have been taken captive and as we're surrendered, I don't want to fight the general. I want to be yielded. And I want him to give me as a gift to the body of Christ. I want him to use everything that I have for his glory. And every one of us, in one sense, have been given as a gift from the conquering king. We were part, we were conquered, and now we're a gift. We get to get in the army. And we need to, we get to pour ourselves out to others. Amen? Stand up. It's 12.03.04. Four seconds after. Let's raise our hands. Father, we thank you for a holiday weekend. We thank you we live in this great nation that celebrates Labor Day. And we celebrate labor by not laboring. Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, we pray for this great nation. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would displace the principalities and powers over this nation. Lord, that you would exercise your rule over this region, this metro area, this county, this state, this nation. Lord, and we ask from here that you would invade the nations of the earth until the, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we are redeemed. That most of us were not your chosen people of Jewish blood, but we were your chosen people by your blood. We thank you for redeeming us. Now, Lord, I ask that you'd enlighten our minds. And Lord, help us to leverage what we're learning for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.